When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. And welcome to the New Books Network Science Podcast. My name is Ozam Yilmaz. I'm a philosopher of biology based in Stockholm. Today we have Andrew Jones with us. Dr. Jones is working at University of Exeter, Department of Innovation, Impact and Business. He's also a good friend. I had the pleasure of being his colleague when I was working in the philosophy department in Exeter. Andrew's new book, how Kant's Kant Matters for Biology, a Philosophical History, was published this year by University of Wales Press. First of all, thank you very much, Andy, for joining us today. It is a great pleasure to talk about your book. As you wrote, this book offers an examination of the historical and philosophical implications of the influence of Kant's critical philosophy on the development of biology in, in the British Isles in the 19th century. And furthermore, you say Kant's philosophy can potentially support and offer guidance to aspects of contemporary philosophy of biology. Before talking about the book, first, can you talk a little bit about yourself, your background, what brought you to this topic, and how you decided to write this book? Absolutely. Um, thank you for inviting me to the podcast. Also. It's really good to have this opportunity. So, uh, so yeah, so, so I'm Andy. Um, I've been in academia for maybe about 15 years now. So I started my undergraduate degree at a place called the University of the West of England, which is just outside of Bristol. Um, I did a straight philosophy degree there and then did a master's degree in um, European philosophy, continental philosophy, and then taught there for a couple of years um, afterwards because they don't have a, um, they, they don't, offer like funded PhD programs there. So there's opportunities for people after after master's program to, or there was at that time, opportunities for people to go and, and teach for a while. Um, and that was really fun. Um, I really enjoyed that. And it gave me kind of my love for Kant and my love for metaphysics and all that stuff. It was a, a really kind of um, innovative and infra- inspirational place to be. And after that, I got accepted on a PhD program, which was split between two institutions. So I had Cardiff University on the one side, and I was supervised by um, Christopher Norris, Professor Christopher Norris there. And I also had um, Exeter University, where I was supervised by John Dupre. And that was between 2014 and I finished the end of 2018, kind of early 2019. Um, Yeah, so that was a great opportunity to like home in my skills from philosophy and um, like make them well, apply them to to philosophy of biology, really. So seeing how these kind of historical figures matter for kind of contemporary debates, um, it's important to say that both of my supervisors were not super supportive of Kant's philosophy. They weren't Kantians. They didn't really see. Um, they saw the point in in doing Kant studies, I think, but they they didn't see why it was relevant for their work, I guess, in a way. So so it was a really interesting um, experience having supervisors who maybe were more critical of the project than, say, most people who study Kant, you know, under kind of these these kind of, um, you know, established scholars in the field um, experience when they're kind of um, building their careers. And then from that, I went into a, a postdoctoral project um, with the theology department in Exeter, um, looking at the relationship between um, science and religion. Uh, and that was between, well, kind of September 2019 um, up to kind of mid-2022. Um, it was supposed to be a project where I was, you know, exploring the world and talking to scientists, um, you know, everywhere and trying to figure out how kind of what the well, what the relationship between science and religion is for kind of scientists on the ground and understanding that the role of like theology historically for the development of science, which kind of fits into what's going on in the book that we're talking about today. But this book is very much more based on my PhD than it was on that postdoctoral research. Um, yeah, but obviously, obviously things have changed. Um, COVID happened and 
it changed the nature of the project a lot. I started doing a lot more interdisciplinary kind of projects with um, with industry partners as well. So, so one of the projects which I'm well still kind of involved in is that we look at the the use of fungicides in farming in the southwest of England. So, so basically, we're interested in how fungicides in arable farming impact river health um, because we know a lot about soil health, but we don't know very much about river health. Um, that's been a really interesting project. We found that fungicides persist in rivers a lot longer. And we've also been speaking to a lot of farmers and agronomists who are essentially soil scientists and kind of farming associations to understand what the drivers and barriers for change are. So we have the kind of very hard science side of that project and the more kind of social science side of that project. And in another project, which I do with um, colleagues at Bristol University, I, I look at developing an ethics tailored towards nuclear innovation. So we've ran a master's project, well, master's um, modules, optional ones for a couple of years. And um, we've been involved in a, a bunch of different um, kind of conferences and stuff like that, just just seeing what the kind of um, appetite is for, for that kind of tailored ethical training, really, because the problem they have, like with most disciplines, is that if you want to do ethics, you basically have to open up Aristotle and see how it applies to you. But there's not that, you know, there's a way that we can tailor these kind of ethical narratives towards specific disciplines to show why it matters for them and actually give them kind of more um, what, accurate kind of... Um, literacy in these skills essentially right so so yeah so and now i work helping people to commercialize their research as an impact fellow for for innovation impact and business so yeah that's kind of a and um yeah i'm kind of that's the whistle stop tour of what i've been doing anyway so sounds wonderful um and um so if if we start to talk about the book now through the book you discuss many important accounts and how they engage with Kant's philosophy uh, it is, of course, not possible to talk about all of them, but we can give a glimpse of some parts. Uh, you argue that philosophers of biology have appealed to Kant to solve issues that go beyond their commitments of naturalism. Maybe we can start to understand this by talking in general on transcendental idealism and Kant's distinction of judgments and facts and appearances and things themselves. Okay, yeah. So I'll focus on the appearance and things in themselves aspect of that, because that's kind of anyone who knows anything about Kant will go, there's, you know, there's appearances, or the world of appearances and the world of things in themselves. And, and that's essentially, if anybody knows anything, that's the first thing you'll learn. Um, and the general interpretation, um, I don't know how general it is, but I think that kind of basic interpretation is that Kant thinks that the world that we experience is an illusion, and that reality is something in itself that we can't access. Um, I don't think that's a very helpful interpretation. I think that's a caricature of his philosophy. Um, and that's kind of how I start the book, really. So, so I look at um, Peter Strawson's book, um, The Bounds of Sense, and that's been super important for the development of Kant studies over the last 50 years. Yeah, but but he has this very critical approach to Kant. You know, he really wants to show why Kant is incompatible with many aspects of science. Um, he has this kind of narrative where where he wants to compare Kant to what he calls the scientifically minded philosopher. And you don't really know who the scientifically minded philosopher is or what they're doing or, you know, what their thoughts are. But it's just this sense that um, Strawson focuses on this idea that if Kant is incompatible with science, then we should we should drop those aspects of Kant's philosophy. You know, they, they shouldn't be the ones that we take forward. And then it's a question of what's left afterwards. Um, my interpretation is more that science is talking about the world that we experience generally. Um, I don't know why scientists would be interested in a world that was un, kind of unaccessible um, to us, right? And that is what the noumenal feels like in Kant is that there's certain reasons why we can assume that it's there or that, you know, we have to like um, presuppose that it's there, but we can't really access it. So I think that that most of Kant's philosophy is focused on the world of experience, the world of appearance, you know, that's where truth is, that's where kind of um, knowledge is, you know, it's, it's not about the things beyond that. Um, and um, Lucy Elias um, does, has a book called Manifest Reality, which makes similar kinds of claims. So, so in the early part of my book, I, I kind of draw on her work to show that there's a lot of aspects of Kant's philosophy, which is actually very compatible with science um, and the way that scientists are interested in kind of the world, because it's about the way that they're experiencing it and turning those experiences into knowledge and systems of knowledge. Um, so, yeah, so I think that's, I'll stop there for the minute. And I think that's kind of, but, but the, the key point is that I kind of flip it. So, you know, it's, it's about the kind of um, phenomenal world or the, you know, the world that we experience rather than the noumenal world or the world of things in themselves, right? So. Mm -hmm. um, maybe can, can you hear say a bit about your concept of influence? 
Uh, and I would like to add another question to this about misunderstandings, because in the start of the book, you say that even misunderstandings can be helpful and influential. Can you talk about these ideas? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, one reason for writing the book, what kind of inspired me to write it was that there's a lot of people writing about Kant's influence on biology already. Um, it's not something that I was coming to, you know, with with no kind of previous scholarship there. And there's this important debate between a guy called Tim Lenoir um, in his book, The Strategy of Life, and John Zamito's responses to that kind of, he has an article called The Lenoir Hypothesis Revisited. Um, and Lenoir's claim is basically that Kant was part of a research program, and he means that in the sense of the philosopher of science, Lakatos. Um, so this idea that he's he's part of a collection of, or he's he's the primary person in a collection of researchers who is responsible for the development of biology, um, a kind of particular group of biologists that Lenoir calls teleomechanists. Um, but the problem is, is that there's a lot of incompatibilities between certain commitments that Kant has in transcendental idealism and the way that his philosophy was used by those kind of subsequent teleomechanist researchers. Um, so, so John Zemito kind of picks up this, this kind of this thought and says, well, he finishes one of his articles by saying only by misunderstanding Kant did biology as a special science emerge. Yeah. So, but Lenoir's point was that Kant is unhelpful for this debate. Yeah. He was saying that because he was misunderstood, he's not relevant for well, he's less relevant for the historical story. There was this strange kind of tension in Lenoir's work that he was trying to to show why Kant wasn't um essential to the development of biology in, in one sense, or because he was misunderstood, he wasn't as important, but then also centralizing him as like the most important figure in the development of biology, right? So, so, and I think it's because of the way that we think misunderstanding works. So we think that if a, um, if someone reads someone's work or has a conversation with someone, but they misunderstand them, then that somehow delegitimizes the way that their work is used. Um, and I think that's a very narrow conception of like, well, influence on the one side, yeah. So I think influence can be based on misunderstandings. I think it probably often is. Um, and in the, the the later part of that first chapter of my book, I spend quite a lot of time um, trying to open up the possibility for another way of understanding influence. Yeah. So so it draws on people like um, Feyerabend, the philosopher of science, the you know often called the anarchist philosopher of science, um, who who talks more about how um, the the kind of the well how we have to separate justification you know why we justify science from from the origination of that science basically um but yeah it was just this sense of showing that there's a much more dynamic way of understanding how these ideas move historically which doesn't require that they are properly understood mm -hmm. yeah and here uh which is also connected to this can you talk about Kant's interpretation of Hume uh and Hume's problem with causality and how Kant reads that and how he is influenced from uh, right. Yes. So, um, so part of the book is showing how these misunderstandings have been very fruitful for um, certain philosophers, or can help us to understand um, different. Well, help us to understand how how philosophers think the way they do because they've interpreted someone the way that they have. Um, and the person I focus on in the second chapter of the book is Kant's relationship with Hume, partially because it's not really, well, on the one side, it's a book for Kantians. On the other side, it's a book for philosophers or historians of science. Um, and I think that Hume is a nice, accessible way into understanding why Kant thinks the way he does. Because, you know, when Kant says that we can't know the world in itself and it's all about the appearances of the world, I think that's very jarring for people, you know, and also Kant has this idea that space and time are um, are kind of produced by us, you know, they, they kind of emerge from the subject rather than we receive it from the world. Um, and I think that's a very confusing kind of mind altering idea for a lot of people coming into Kant and they go, well, I'm not interested in that because I don't want, I don't want that kind of worldview essentially. Um, so his relationship with Hume, I think, is that... Um, well, it comes from a, another figure as well called Paul Geyer, right? And Paul Geyer has this idea that, you know, generally when we talk about Hume, we talk about Hume's um, concept of causality, we we view Hume as a skeptic towards causality, right? We view him as saying, you know, it's possible that the world, well, the, the sun might not um, rise tomorrow. So therefore we can't know with absolute kind of deductive certainty that the sun is going to rise. Um, but then he has this way of replacing the rational justification of that with a more like psychologistic justification, or like custom or habit. Yeah. Um, and, and Geyer argues that 
that this really sounds like dogmatism. Yeah, he's saying even though we have no rational justification for the, the the sun rising tomorrow, we still continue to believe it like wholeheartedly, just because we have this notion of custom or habit that just makes us compelled to believe that it's going to continue to happen, even though we know that it's not rationally justified. Right. So. I mean, this presents Hume not so much as a skeptic, but as a kind of, you know, dogmatist of habit, right? And I think that when we compare, when we look at how Kant understood Hume, I think he saw what Hume said about the, um, well, the, the ability to rationally justify causality um, as totally correct. But it was only because Hume was talking about things in themselves. Yeah, Hume never actually questioned, well, he he didn't really go into an in-depth questioning of the distinction between experience and things in themselves. Yeah. So Hume basically says that we cannot know the causal connections between things in themselves, because although we experience things in themselves on a Humean framework, we don't experience the connections between things. Whereas what Kant says is that, well, Hume's totally right to question the causal connections of things in themselves, but what he really should have done is questioned the whole relationship that we have with things in themselves. Yeah. So, so Kant's conception of causality is one that is totally within experience. You know, it's about us ordering our experiences um, with certain kind of um what time-determined concepts. Yeah. So so Kant talks about the difference between a ship going up and down a stream, and that being a succession of events that has a certain time order in it. And if it were if it were to be otherwise, then it would be a different concept, yeah? So either the ship's going upstream or the ship's going downstream. And if it's going downstream, it can't possibly be going upstream. And that's one of Kant's um, ways of explaining causality. But it's all about the experience and the way we order experiences rather than the objects which we don't really have a um, direct relationship to. And uh, also in the second chapter, you talk about the status of um, laws in philosophy of science. And there you have a part about Cartwright's account of laws as nomological machines and Bajkar's transcendental realist account of laws. Uh, you argue that uh, combined, they can be presented in the form of a Kantian mathematical antinomy. Can you say a bit about this? And perhaps you can uh, talk about context specificity of scientific research in Cartwright's account, because that is how she has nomological machines, right? Yes, yeah. yeah. So in that part of the book, I'm I'm trying to explain how debates in, so, so basically it's kind of in chapter two, at the end of chapter two, and I'm trying to explain how certain debates in yeah, about the status of laws in contemporary philosophy of science could be supported by a, a Kantian kind of um, discussion. Yeah. So, so it's, it's in the same um, kind of chapter that I'm talking about Hume and we're talking about kind of um, shifting our knowledge into the context of experience. Um, so, so in Kant's um, critique of pure reason, his first critique at the end of, uh, in the final part of that book, which is um, yeah called like, well, it's, it's in the kind of yeah, third part of that book. He's, He's interested in talking about how we break down these metaphysical discussions, like kind of um, bring them within the, the the framework of of transcendental idealism. And he does this through talking about antinomies. Um, and an antinomy is something where you see an opposition between two points of view, and and basically the way out of or the way to solve the antinomy is to show that both points of view have this kind of shared, um, flawed assumption or kind of premise in their arguments and and this is specifically for mathematical antinomies so so he gives an example of, a, of smelling a rose and the rose either smells good or smells bad um, and the idea is is that as that as the two alternative options that we can have we never get out of that problem right it has to be one or the other but but Kant's um, kind of way of getting out of it in kind of common sense ways go well maybe the rose has no smell at all yeah so it's that idea that giving that third option which shows you know that the assumption is that the rose has to have a smell and therefore it has to be either good or bad um it shows that there's this way of deflating the metaphysical argument right so so um, it's important to say that he thinks that his list of antinomies which he gives four he thinks they are exhaustive of reality and i don't think they are i think there's other ones i think you can make quite a few um but in the context of the debates in the philosophy of science, I was looking at Roy Bascar's conception of um, these kind of transfactual universal laws. So, so Bascar's view is basically that laws exist um, or universal laws of nature exist. And the reason why we find it so hard to find them is because the um, the world is quite messy and these laws are always like conflicting with one another. So, so if there were no other laws acting, then we would get uniformity across you know, the, the universe. Um, 
But he says that the reason why it's so hard to kind of replicate that in experimental conditions is because it's hard to isolate those laws from other laws which are acting. Whereas Cartwright, um, her view is, is basically that we have very little empirical evidence to believe in the universal existence of laws, right? That's the, because we find that in certain experimental conditions, we can isolate kind of these, these powers um, in a way that, that allows us to, um, well, determine them, well, to, to kind of determine them and give kind of um, repeatability for our experiments and things like that. Um, but when we actually look for expanding that out beyond the experimental conditions, it hardly ever happens, you know, that, that uniformity hardly ever maintains. And these are um, these contexts of very kind of um, specific experimental conditions is, is what Cartwright refers to as essentially nominological machines. So, so it's that sense of producing regularity um, and uniformity within a certain scientific um, conditions. But then going on to um, like, well, make the claim that because we have made that um, uniformity in a certain condition, that that is across the whole of the universe. And she argues that it's just being a bad empiricist to, uh, to argue that, um, that, that uniformity exists beyond the conditions that it's kind of set up in. Um, so, so I think that, yeah, so the way you kind of show that this is a, a an antinomy is by, by arguing that both sides have this um, conception of um, laws, which are kind of metaphysical. Yeah. They're not seen as kind of subject specific, something that you kind of try and um, apply to nature from, from the human standpoint, but they are something that exists out there in nature. So, so, so the Kantian like regularity would be that basically it shows that we can search for these um, universal laws. Um, and that's kind of what Bhaskar is trying to do, but, but the fact, and the fact that there isn't very much um, empirical evidence to support them isn't a problem if we have it as like an idea for science. Yeah. So it can be a motivation for science, even though the evidence is, is very slim, but we can also, um, explain that on the empirical level, there's not very much evidence for these universal laws to exist beyond their experimental conditions. Um, because it's more about the way that we are trying to order our experiences, um, and kind of create that regularity within the kind of context of our experiences rather than pointing to a law and saying there it is you know it, it exists and um, it exists kind of independently of us so so that's the way i try to kind of reconcile the two points of view because i think that the unity of nature is a really well it's, it's quite an important concept for science it's not like the most important but i i think that there's a debate to be had about whether science could really continue to um be a science you know even in principle if it got rid of all commitments to some degree of, of unity um it doesn't have to be cosmic it doesn't have to be like at the at the universe level but i think that idea that our explanations um hold and are um like able to be applied to different contexts um are, are giving us kind of predictable results is, is all you know a partial amount of unity that is essentially kind of the, the bedrock of the assumption of science so. mm -hmm. um i would like to ask about uh, differences between organisms and machines and consciousness of them going forward in, in the book. For example, in chapter four, there's a quote from Kant about how machines have only motive power while an organism has a formative power in itself. Can you talk about this? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, machines and organisms, they're different in different ways, right? So, or, well, it's, it's coming against the view in uh, philosophy of science where we do talk about organisms in very machine-like terminology. You know, they have functions. Um, they, yeah, well, um, it all comes back to, well, one of the the, the key figures is, is, is Paley. Um, so Paley had this idea of um, finding a watch on a heath. Um, and he said, you would just assume that that watch was created by God, essentially. Yeah, so it was, it was created by a designer. Um, and then he, he said that, Basically, what what organisms are is they're very complicated watch, watches which have this capacity to reproduce themselves, right? So Paley was writing just after Kant. Um, he never, well, there's no reason to think that he ever read Kant, and um, there's no reason to think that he was familiar with Kant's distinctions between organisms and machines. But but Kant thought that um, organisms weren't like machines. Um, so where Paley had said that that's the the obvious way of kind of understanding biological systems, Kant had said that organisms aren't machines because organisms um, have growth, reproduction, repair, they maintain themselves and they produce offspring. Um, and machines don't have any of these qualities, you know, at, at a very fundamental level, machines are created by something which is not the machine. You know, it's, it's about the intentions of another, which is responsible for the development of the machine. So, so this is really important for Kant because it shows that 
organisms have this kind of incomprehensible quality in terms of the way that he understood the world so so kant was very into newton um he thought that newton like newtonian laws and newtonian framework was um the ideal uh manifestation of a science essentially yeah so he thought that was the best science that we had and the problem was that organisms have all these like weird properties that that are not compatible with that newtonian framework right so so this is why kant was interested in these kind of well, what you know, organisms in a sense, but but he basically ends up saying that um, they they seem to have all these properties, but because we we know that the world is not compatible with the properties that they have, we have to put it down to our way of judging those kinds of you know those kinds of entities. So we judge organisms as if they have functions, you know, as if they are end directed, um, but we have to understand that that might not be actually. Um, applicable to to how organisms actually are, you know, beyond our experience of them. And um, who well is one of the scientist philosophers uh, whom you choose in order to point out the importance of Kant for the development of biology? You observe that even though uh, he got influenced from Kant's account in some respects, he stepped away from transcendental idealism. Can you talk about that? Yes, absolutely. So. Um, it feeds into another debate which is going on in in Huell scholarship, and it's more about like um, how well the extent to which Huell was influenced by by Kant at all. So some people say he was very influenced because, um, for instance, um, he has this idea of the active power of the mind, which is very Kantian. He has this idea that um, to have knowledge, you need these two ir irreducible sources. So for Kant, it's um, it's kind of you have two faculties. One is um, faculty of sensibility. The other one is the faculty of understanding. For Huell, it's this distinction between thoughts and things, right? So, and um, and the third thing is that they're both really keen on this idea of unity, right? You know, so for Kant, this unity is a regulative demand of reason. So you know, reason entails that we try to unify nature. Um, whereas for Huell, it's this scientific uh, method of consilience, right? So it's something that has continued to be influential for our justification for sciences is how well it um, unifies with other theories, right? So so that's the reason why there could be influences there. Um, and I think they're quite compelling arguments. But then he doesn't use Kantian terminology at all. He doesn't talk about appearances. You know, there's a, there's a direct relationship with the world. Um, one of the ways that Huell really, well, one of the differences between their philosophies is that Huell has a very strong role for God to play in his system, whereas Kant has a um, kind of, I would say, quite a hard agnosticism towards knowledge of God. You know, a big part of Kant's philosophy is to um, deny knowledge of God in order to make room for faith. Um, and that's really important for his moral philosophy. It's really important for his philosophy of religion. Um, this fact that we can't know God um, under the conditions of transcendental idealism, it it limits how much we can say about the world. Yeah. So, So in terms of their views of science, Kant's view of science is more about, it's about how we understand the world and how we organize our experiences within the world. Whereas I think for scientists like Huell, that's just not very, like, it's not an appetizing view of what scientists are doing. Like they want like robust, but from, so I think this is true historically, but also true of contemporary debates is that many philosophers of science and scientists would, would want to be having robust ways of talking about, you know, the world in itself, you know, they, they want to see themselves as like discoverers of nature, rather than kind of like, you know, psychonauts or people who are doing like more psychologistic things where we're going, oh, what we're doing in physics is just understanding how we think about, you know, the, the appearances that we have and organizing them. It just doesn't sound like a very, like, exciting um, prospect of, of what we're actually achieving, right? Because we never really get to the world. And I think that's really important for, for why he'll, um, like, although he's influenced by Kant, he changes from him because he wants that account of science, which is much more world-focused um, and also, like, much more God-focused. Yeah, I think that I mean, the project that I was on um, before starting my current role was looking at the relationship between science and religion. And I think that kind of the world as... Uh, um, you know, God's book of nature type argument. So so the idea is, is that the Bible is, you know, the book which tells you what to do. But then nature is what gives you like this kind of um, awe and wonder and um, kind of reverence for God. And and Kant has some of that in his work as well. But I think that in Huell, it's so much bigger that he thinks that this kind of science as the book of nature type argument is is a real motivation for, for being a scientist. So. Um, 
can you say a bit about the mechanical and teleological explanations in Kant? And I know it's maybe too much to discuss, but maybe you can elaborate on moral teleology uh, here too. For example, you say in chapter five that it would not be possible to conceive of nature teleologically if we didn't have the capacity for moral teleology. Yes, yeah. So, I mean, the reason why I'm talking about this like in, in this part of the book, so it's, it's a bit later on, um, and it's because it's to kind of um, give a pushback to philosophers of science who are talking about Kant quite explicitly. So um, I don't think there's a lot of literature on the relationship between moral and physical teleology. And I think that when that that um, that literature does come out, it tends to argue that there isn't a big connection between the two. Um, but I mean, when you compare it to some of the aspects of, of Kant's, um, this is in the, the the critique of teleological judgment, which is um, in, in, in his third book, his third critique, um, basically, he has this view at the end where our, our capacity to judge nature teleologically is connected with our capacity of moral judgment. Yeah, So it's not that they justify one another. It's this, um, he describes it as a relationship of corroboration. So, so, so moral teleology or moral, uh, well, physical teleology corroborates the existence of um, moral teleology because what we're doing is we're applying the same kind of way of thinking to the world in seeing this kind of physical teleology. Then we are, well, when we are kind of thinking morally about the world. So that's why I talk about it. Um, and I also think that most most uh, philosophers of science have this view that our capacity for morality would obviously come after our kind of biological organization. You know, we have to be the kind of entities that can have biological organization before we can consider how we kind of could develop this capacity for morality. But for Kant, I think it's flipped. Yeah, I think he thinks that the only reason we can see organisms, you know, the only reason they present themselves to us is because we have this moral way of thinking in the first place. And in Kant's moral thinking, that's about creating universal laws which um, hold um, under kind of, well, they, they, they hold true regardless of the circumstance. They're, they're basically not determined in time at all. You know, they have this very different relationship with time than, say, um, the, the way that we we know things exist, because you know, we have to do that in this kind of um, first critique, um, temporal part of our being. But organisms have this, well, they also have this weird relationship with time. You know, although they're temporal, it seems that some of, when we're talking about functions, we're talking about things that exist for future states, but those states aren't actually manifested yet. Yeah, so like lungs are for breathing, but how, how do you get half a lung? And this is, and I think there's a big um, connection with, what Kant thinks he's doing in his moral teleology and how he thinks physical teleology is um, is kind of um, building into that. I mean, he also thinks that the world is very, like we have this view of nature now where it's kind of red in tooth and claw and all of that. And it's, it's very um, like, yeah, violent. Um, and that's a problem for some theological debates, for instance, you know, the amount of violence that exists in the natural world. But I don't think that Kant viewed the world in that way. He saw it as very fine-tuned and very kind of um, harmonizing. And in that sense, he saw the um, the, the, the kind of um, the awe and wonder that we get when we are experiencing the world and just seeing how fine-tuned it is as a justification for like this kind of, it makes us compelled to believe that there's something greater than ourselves. But because he denied that we could have knowledge of the existence of God, um, he, he still thinks that it's kind of, relating to our our kind of duties that we have for ourselves yeah that the world seems so well organized is another reason for us to act morally and it's actually been structured in a way that we are physically capable of doing that right so mm -hmm. and uh, at this point maybe we can talk about Kant's theoretical and practical philosophy you are saying how Kant regarded teleological judgments as potentially providing a unifying bridge between his te uh, theoretical and practical philosophy yeah. can you elaborate on this um, so at the beginning of the third critique, Kant has um, an introduction, and he he essentially says that this is what um, what one of the intentions is for the book is to create a bridge between theoretical and practical philosophy. Um, whether he's successful in that or not is is an open question, I think. But that he thinks that in the first part of the third critique, he writes about beauty a lot and aesthetics, um, and and basically the the general view there is that when you find something beautiful, you're saying something more than just I like this, um, and you either should or should not like it. When you're when you're seeing something which is you think is beautiful, you're saying, "I like this," and it's eliciting a response in me which I think you should share when you see this thing too. Yeah, there's a sense of um, judgments of beauty which is about um, 
at least like expecting others to assent to the judgment that you're making. Um, but the reason we have that judgment is because in the feeling of beauty, we, we have this relationship with something greater than ourselves and it produces this feeling in us essentially. So, so that's one of the ways that Kant thinks that this kind of moral and theoretical um, bridge is going to happen. Um, and then in, in physical teleology as well, it's, it's about the fact that we are, we're combining ways of knowing the world, which are not compatible with our understanding of like scientific laws, right? So you put yourself in the context of Kant and he's a, you know, he's a Newtonian. Um, it's just not possible at the time that Kant's, well, it's, it's not possible, Kant doesn't think it's possible to actually explain why why organisms emerge under a Newtonian framework. You know, why are they there? They don't seem to, to work well. I mean, I think, or they don't seem to be compatible, right, with the kind of way that we understand that the universe, um, that's what I mean by not working well. So, um, so in that sense, I think that he thinks that because it doesn't fall within the capacity for theoretical philosophy, and he's got this big kind of division between moral and theoretical philosophy, you know, kind of theoretical and practical reason, um, he thinks that we are drawing on practical reason um, to, to understand these kinds of organisms. And we do see them as kind of purposive and having these goals. And, and we see ourselves as purposive because of the um, kind of order of nature. So, so in that sense, I think that's where he sees the experience of um, the purposiveness of nature as, as to some extent, kind of providing a bridge between theoretical and practical reason. But, but yeah, I think there's a lot of um, disagreement about whether Kant is really successful in that. You know, so there's, I mean, in 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 other books, he talks about the primacy of practical reason and things like that. So, it's um it's hard to see how they could be unified because of their kind of different ways of um being manifest, right? So. Mm -hmm. Um. There is an interesting section on biological individuality, which is a hot topic on contemporary philosophy of biology. Uh, and there are a lot of aspects related to this topic in the section. Maybe we can choose autonomy. Uh, you are noting that the contemporary account of biological autonomy draws explicitly from Kant's account of physical teleology, but you argue that uh, when Kant's conception of teleological judgment is understood in the context of transcendental idealism and specifically its relation to his account of moral teleology, it does not offer uh, support to the position of biological autonomy, you're saying. Uh, can you talk a bit about it? Sure, yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's important for for a lot of reasons. So so biologists, especially um, in, in kind of this idea of biological autonomy, um, there is a lot of interest in Kant there. On, on the Kant side, well, not so much on them. There are Kantians who are interested in it, but it's also the philosophy of biology side. Like they've been drawing on certain interpretations of Kant. Um, like people like um, Stuart Kaufman have been really important in this in this um, aspect, and, and um, uh, Mattia Mossio and Avero Marino as well have been very kind of um, active in in the development of this field. Um, and I think like first, the, the first thing to say is that Kant actually denied that biology was a science. Yeah, like, because we're talking about this Newtonian framework type stuff, Kant didn't think that it could be um, reconciled with the kind of experience we have of organisms. So the, a big point of the first, well, the third critique when he's talking about um, physical teleology is to say that he he doesn't think that biology will ever become a science. You know, he denies the kind of possibility that another Newton might arise who could one day explain the existence of a blade of grass, um, which is a you know, kind of very famous quote in from the book. Um, but when we get to people using his his work to try and justify um, biological autonomy, they're they're using Kant's description of organisms. Um, you know, these things that reproduce and uh, have, have the ability to uh, to kind of grow and repair, um, and, and their, their parts exist for the sake of their whole. Um, and Kant really is describing this in a way that he goes, you know, isn't this so weird in the conception of science that we have that we view certain parts of the world as having these kinds of properties, um, and therefore he kind of deflates it down to a relationship of judgment is how we judge the way the world to be, rather than making a claim about how the world is. Um, whereas for biological autonomy, these are very much kind of um, claims about the way the world is. Yeah, these properties exist, and they exist in the entities that we are looking for, or that we are looking at. Um, and I think. My concern is that we use Kant's philosophy as a way of justifying the use of these concepts in biology um, without thinking about the broader like differences between why Kant is talking about these things and how it fits within the, the broader conception of transcendental idealism, because he's a very kind of 
systematic philosopher. You know, he's trying to figure out how theoretical and practical philosophy like fit together. Um, and our experience of, of organisms is just one of the things that he focuses on to uh, to try and explain this. And I think it's in that sense, it's a problem that Kant has across his career. Because I mean, in a lot of Kant scholarship, we think that there's you know the later Kant, the Kant of the free critiques, the one that did transcendental idealism, and that's so different to the earlier Kant, who's like a Leibnizian. Um, but he was writing about um, the difficulties with explaining organisms from the very beginning of his career. So, um, so yeah, I just want to put that in there as, a, as, a, as an aside. But the, the other side to focus on this is like how the explanations work for the, bio, you know, for the philosophers of biology themselves. So in the book, I talk about um, an article which um, Mozio Marino um, wrote in 2010, and it's about like organizational closure in biological systems, right? And you know, biological autonomy is supposed to be a really naturalist system, right? You know, it's supposed to be something that is totally explainable in terms of natural concepts. But when we start talking about kind of the ways of explaining um, the existence or the kind of nature of organizational closure, they have this idea of like, imagine there's a pool table, um, but the pool table is set up in a way that it has two balls on them, but they kind of are in this circular um, kind of um, structure. So that when one ball gets hit, it, it goes around the circle and it hits the second ball. And then the second ball continues to move and hits the first ball. And that's what they see as this kind of organizational closure. Um, but they also say that this exists in, well, ideally in frictionless conditions. So once they start moving, they never stop. And also that the parameters, you know, like the, uh, the, the structure of the pool table itself has to be like established from within the pool table. And that's kind of what an organism looks like. And... And I'm just like, I'm not trying to caricature their views at all. Um, but I I struggle to understand how that's like a natural concept of nature. Yeah, I mean, like the world does have friction. Um, you know, pool tables don't self-organize so that they create their own boundaries. And, um, and you know, even though in an ideal situation, it'd be frictionless, um, you know, organisms die. There's a, yeah, like, so I was struggling to see how the explanation actually helped to explain the phenomena that they are perceiving right and as a Kantian where I'm going this could just be judgment I mean this feels a lot like a kind of judgment type explanation because it doesn't seem to have any um like grounding in in like the well the natural state of affairs or the way that you know nature would be commonly experienced um but again you know I'm really keen on what they do I think it's really good I just think that there's a certain sense in which we need to be a bit more careful, especially when we're drawing on philosophers like Kant, because if they are doing um, if if they are doing conceptual work for our theories, but they're based on um, concepts that are not um, well appropriate for his, the the original formulation of them, there's a sense of kind of we're using Kant's philosophy to explain a problem that is not being explained away by the way that we're using it, right? And I'm not saying that they don't have other explanations. I'm just saying, you know, it's kind of a why appeal to Kant in these kind of explanations um, and what is the role that his philosophy is doing for, for those theories, yeah. And uh, you compare Kant's account with the works of contemporary philosophers of biology uh, like them. And one of these philosophers is John Dupre, who has significant influence on both your and my work. Mm -hmm. uh, you are saying that both Kant and Dupre are advocating for uh, advocating the importance of human activity in a way that cannot be accounted uh, for under the conditions of biological determinism. Can you say a bit about the similarities and differences between their accounts? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's a hard sell to try and because obviously you know we both know John Dupre quite well. Um, we've he was my supervisor, my second supervisor for the project. Um, I've spoken to him quite a lot about Kant um, and. I think that, yeah, his, from conversations, I think that his problem, well, one of his problems with Kant, it might not be his main one, but uh, but he thinks that Kant is a determinist, a physical determinist. He thinks that he's he's offering a deterministic conception of nature. Um, and that's one of the reasons why he distances himself from his work. And in some of his earlier work, well, maybe well, earlier now, but um, yeah, 20 years ago, he was he was writing a bit more about like the things that he liked about a Kantian system. Um, but I think that in the, in the kind of philosophy of biology or history and philosophy of biology space, like Aristotle has become a much bigger figure than um, than Kant in many ways because Aristotle seems to be much more naturalist, right? That's the thing. But uh, but yeah, so the reason why I think that they both have this like shared um, understanding of the importance of human activity is that 
I think that in contemporary philosophy of science, we're having a lot of discussions about values. Like values are becoming very important, um, especially in like hubs like Exeter, yeah, where we have like Sabina Leonelli um, working on um, like how how values matter for like the infrastructure of science, things like that, like how we should be, you know, focusing on um, these kind of collaborations between scientists, but understanding the conditions which they work under as well. And I think that Kant has a, he has a, a he has a kind of voice here in a sense, because he was such a polymath. Yeah. So, so Kant tried to like, he was a systemic philosopher. He was trying to unify lots of different disciplines. And there were like the usual suspects that were like, you know, metaphysics, ethics, um, you know, epistemology. But then there was more unusual kind of parts of his philosophy where he was also trying to get it included in the like, overall system, like um, politics, religion, like even like university organizations. He has a, an, um, an article called The Conflict of the Faculties. And it's it's about like showing how universities should be structured and like pedagogy and education, stuff like that. Like he was really trying to get a, a kind of a whole system of knowledge that could be applied to many different things. Um, and I think specifically in relation to politics and the relationship between politics and philosophy, Kant offers us a way of thinking about values and the values of science. Um, I mean, it's important that I describe this part of my book as like more of a Kant-inspired account, because I think it's important for us as Kant scholars to be saying, Kant didn't say this and he couldn't say this. Um, and the reason why he couldn't say it is because he thought science was all Newtonian and it was about universal and objective truth. But I mean, if you take Cartwright's argument, right, which I, which I do, and I think that there is not a good, um, there's not very good empirical evidence to believe in the actual existence of laws in nature. Yeah. But there is, um, there is kind of ways to think that we should have principles and, um, and ideas that guide our, well, our activities in the world, you know, including science, right? So, so I think that when John is talking about this idea that um, we have certain aspects of ourselves that cannot be accounted for um, under the like just pure biological determinism, and you know, examples are like the the impact of hospitals on life expectancy or the impact of planes on um, biological diversity in the human species, right? That kind of thing, yeah? So, so so, we realized that we kind of, you know, greatly kind of diversify the gene pool because some kind of mechanical innovation has happened, which makes it much easier for us to meet people from kind of different parts of the world. Um, and if you're a pure kind of, um, you know, kind of biological determinist and you're like, well, we only care about the genes, um, you're going to really struggle to answer those kind of questions, you know, when when you're, you know, thinking about it in a couple of thousand years and going, well, why did this happen? You know, how did this happen? Yeah, so, so, and I think that what the Kantian system offers to, to that kind of role of, um, a much more inclusive um, explanation of biology is that if there are values driving why we do biology and why we're interested in the things that we are. So, um, for instance, one of one of John's um, examples is is about like sexual assaults and um, things like that, and how they've been compared to like mosquitoes and and ducks and stuff like that. And he's going, well, there's there's very little like um, biological justification for why these would be the, the the kind of closest ancestors that we would be looking at to explain this behavior at all. And also it completely excludes the fact that there's a whole like psychology behind, uh, you know, actions at the kind of human level, which probably don't exist for flies. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not about power for flies. It's about reproduction, I think. Yeah. Um, whereas for us, there's a whole power dynamic, which is involved in our society as well. And I think that shows on the one side how our biological explanations need to be accounting for those underlying values which people may have um, to, to get the correct biological explanations. But it also shows this underlying commitment to, you know, one of the roles of science is to make the world a better place, right? And and to make it safer and to make people safer and and to uh, to, to aid like our progressive development. I mean, I would imagine, yeah. Um, and, and I think that's pretty non-controversial to say, yeah. But I don't think that many scientists would or philosophers of science would necessarily want to say it you know i think there's that sense that if we are doing science and we're doing it because of the values that we hold we should probably talk more about the values and the role of those values and how we um, use those values to guide our um our understanding of the world um and that be part of the science that we do you know we talk about the way that funding um kind of essentially carves out a possibility space for the kind of research that gets done um but we make that much more explicit you know we make the disagreements among scientists much more explicit because science is this you know kind of um conversation between many people and we don't all think the same um 
we don't all think that you know a single answer is going to be the right answer to all our problems but we're quite bad um you know as a as a kind of discipline for for um kind of explaining that to to other kind of uh, well to, to to audiences to publics you know that there's a big assumption that you know got to trust the science and stuff like that and it's of course science is very important um but it's it's also a sense of um like showing that science is a human discipline as well you know that it's about people having conversations doing things where there's a lot of uncertainty and and doing our best and um yeah kind of not holding ourselves to those unrealistic demands of complete uniformity amongst our explanations but can, uh, can you describe it with, uh, how the book in general can be integrated to classroom for students learning and what do you recommend to instructors and students? Yeah. Um, so I think like the book, the, the reasons for the book is it's partially a comment to, to Kant scholars. So, you know, Kantian specifically, um, because we have so many interpretations of Kant now that when people start picking up those interpretations from other disciplines, um, there's there's quite a, you know, it's this potential for misunderstanding, right? And they can be very good and they can be very bad. Um, but I think we just need to be a little bit more careful when we are, when we're engaging with other disciplines to to make sure that we are not, um, well, it, it's, it's, there's not a right, you know, kind of interpretation of Kant, but there are many interpretations that need more context in order to be explained, yeah? And I think that the stuff around, like, which has led to biological autonomy, um, has has been based on a kind of account of Kant, which is it's got quite a lot of followers. You know, it's got quite a lot of people think that Kant is a um, a physical teleologist. You know, giving us a physical an account of physical teleology and um, overlook the fact that he's actually denying the uh, the existence of biology as a science. Or, or sometimes they say, well, Kant just didn't know about thermodynamics. You know, if he knew about thermodynamics, that that would have been the solution. He would have never had to question this stuff because it wasn't a Newtonian world. Um, or it isn't a Newtonian world. But I think that there's also these other aspects like Kant's moral philosophy, you know, his his interest in God, um, something that I've worked on a lot because of this what I did in theology and religion as well was um, Kant's philosophy of religion. Um, you know, I think that God is a big, um, like behind the scenes player in Kant's philosophy yeah? and, and across his whole career. You know, when he was early, when, when he was in his early stages of his career, he thought that God existed um, and he thought that you could justify the existence of God. Um, and as he moved towards his later career, he realized that you couldn't possibly like justify the existence of God because of the kind of entity that God is and the kind of um, limits that we have on, on explanation. So, so he moved towards a really heavily agnostic um, point of view towards God in terms of um, knowledge, but in terms of faith and in terms of the way that the world kind of um, elicits responses that make you go, you know, this, there's something so much bigger than me. I mean, Kant was definitely, I think he thought that there was something there but you could just never have knowledge of it right so, so so that's one of the reasons is that i think that in kant scholarship we're we're maybe not as good as um contextualizing kant as we should be um and i'm sure that a lot of kantians would disagree with what i just said about god um just <laughs> so so it's not that my answer is the correct one and everybody else is wrong at all um it's just that we don't even have like very much discussion in this area really and then like for, for philosophers of biology, I think that there's this, you know, this kind of naturalism question, yeah, that, that I think that a lot of the concepts that we use in science are not really compatible with the commitment to naturalism. I don't really know what naturalism is. Like, I still don't know what naturalism is. Um, it's used in so many ways. Um, and it seems to me that when people are talking about naturalism, they're, they're using it in a way that they're trying to exclude certain people from the conversation, right? So, and that's not, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, it's a broad brush kind of um, view, but I think that when we say that in philosophy of biology, we're only interested in these kind of naturalist explanations, we usually have an anti-naturalist target in mind who are saying that's not part of nature. Yeah. So we don't want that to be part of our explanation. Um, and I think that like values historically have been a big part of that kind of more anti-naturalist, you know, constructivist approach. And I think it's about, um, like showing historically how a lot of um, principles have have kind of infiltrated science, which are not, um, well, which I would argue are not compatible with naturalism, right? So, so for instance, you know, the very idea of the unity of nature, yeah, um, as as a kind of driving force for science, yeah, that we're actually looking for kind of well explanations that um, achieve consilience, they bring other disciplines together. We see that as a really important kind of a methodological tool in science. Um, I would argue like even now we still see that as as a kind of important aspect of science. 
but there's almost like no justification for why nature should be unified right apart from you know Huel 200 years ago going well you know god yeah or someone like or Kant going well it's good for our um our scientific theories to be understandable for us yeah and i think that's that's a fair argument i think you can justify that but if it's going beyond us and you know like um like for instance you know one of stephen hawking's like um you know kind of buzzword sentences was that i'm looking for a single unified explanation of everything right and, and you're like well why you know like this doesn't seem like something that um good science or good scientific methodology should be expecting because there's almost no empirical evidence for it um so so it's the book is also kind of a pushback against this um heavy commitment to naturalism um a kind of an investigation into the idea that there are certain concepts in science which are quite hard to justify in accordance with with naturalism and and maybe on the back side of that um we shouldn't see that as a bad thing you know we should see that as opening up the space for discussions about values um discussions about you know our future direction of our science or philosophers of science you know of of what we are looking to explore and achieve in the future and see that as central to the sciences that we're developing rather than kind of peripheral you know because i think a, a lot of scientists will say something like well my science is not kind of value um, dependent or value laden at all. You know, I'm doing good science, but I understand that the context which I work in is very value laden. Yeah, you know that I have to apply for grants, that I have to publish, that you know that um, that I'm involved in a team, that the team has certain dynamics, that that we want to be in certain kind of you know parts of our life. You know, it's a it's it's all the way down. There's things going on, right? But they'll say that the science they create is independent of that, and and I'm not sure. I'm not sure how far that argument can go because the the context of the science that we do is only one of many sciences that we could be doing, right? So, so it shows that even the good science that we do, sure, it's good science, but it doesn't mean that there weren't other ways that science could develop, um, which would have also been equally as good um, and given us different kinds of knowledge. I mean, like COVID is a perfect example of how we focus on a particular, you know, very important issue, um, and and um, and that can be pushing other opportunities in science to the side for a while right so yeah so i think that's the kind of way that i would like sell the book in a way it's, it's you know philosophers of science it's about the questioning naturalism for, for, for Kant scholars it's about just thinking about our own practices as, as a community really so mm -hmm. and uh now with this book now published uh what topics are you turning now uh your attention to what projects are you working right. on Yes, so um, I have a special issue coming out next month, which I'm editing with um, good friend Andrew Cooper from Warwick University. Um, that's on Kant and Natural Science. It might be next month. It might be the month after. But uh, yeah, kind of August 2023 is is when we're thinking we're going to have it in print. Um, yeah, and that's going to be a really interesting collection of, of papers just looking at how Kant's philosophy is... Um, is, is kind of related to natural science in different ways and also how it relates to other aspects of his philosophy as well. So, so that, that'll be cool. Um, and yeah, there'll be a bit more about kind of, I pick up this, this question about us as Kantians and what we're doing in that paper a bit more as well. And I, I make some comparisons to, to other issues in, in contemporary philosophy, like, um, like stuff on model organisms, for instance, I think that Kant has an interesting, like can have an interesting perspective on what we're doing in model organisms. Um, but it's much more of an exploratory paper rather than something where I'm making like really strong arguments. Um, in general, I think that my, my kind of my job roles and my employment are a bit different to most academics so so i don't technically work in an academic part of the university anymore um i i help people to commercialize their research um, in humanities arts and social science disciplines uh yes it's, it's a really interesting place to be in the university um there's there's a lot of like exciting work going on and we're looking to to get people away from those like traditional funding models of um you know grant applications um, ukri grant applications um in in the uk specifically and um and kind of student recruitment and move more towards like um moving working with industry partners um kind of um, doing things called knowledge transfer partnerships or spin out companies or contract research like it's, it's about those other opportunities that academics maybe are not aware of especially in um, humanities social sciences and um, yeah, arts but um but they're there and trying to kind of build build some um, awareness there but yeah even that is a you know fixed term post it's going to come to an end very soon and um I think that after that, well, we'll see if something else comes up in the meantime. But after that, I think I'll do a bit of like work in New Zealand for a while. Um, I'm interested in some 
some other ideas like about um, kind of the sanctity of nature type debates. Um, since I've been in the theology and religion department, I'm interested in how our kind of relationship with nature is one that elicits responses from us that we feel um, kind of are greater than ourselves. And I'm also interested in um, philosophers of science who move towards like um, religion in, in the later parts of their uh, of their lives, right? Or some kind of religious, you know, kind of interest. So for instance, you know, kind of um, um, Francisco Varela writes a book on Buddhism at the end of his life. And I'm just interested in how, well, why they feel that their philosophy compels them to move in that way and and how that is um how that can be given also a Kantian narrative, right? So, so this sense that if you're working with nature, it still makes you feel awe and wonder. Um, but maybe it's not awe and wonder directed towards God, but it's awe and wonder directed towards the experiences that you're having. Yes, but um, yeah, it's very unknown. I mean, job insecurity is a, a, a real difficulty for people in our in our um, yeah stage of employment, I think, and mm -hmm. uh, and in the UK specifically, it's um, it's, it's much more significant at the moment there's currently marking strikes going on which i'm not involved in because i don't mark but obviously have solidarity with those people who are involved in them mm -hmm. um but uh but yeah I'm, I'm definitely an advocate for the idea that we should be diversifying our skill set and working for other parts of our kind of society which are in dire need of our skills because i do think that in, in to some degree we are staying in academia where we surround ourselves by other academics is um not the best use of the very kind of specialist skills that we have so so yeah but we'll see what happens yeah <laughs> yes that was great thank Brilliant. you so much Andy, for joining us it was great to talk to you thank you very much thank you Aslam. that's brilliant <laughs>